You're listening to Were You Still Talking? They pump out your blood and they pump in a, a new batch of blood and all of it is the blood of children. All the big stars are going to be on TV now. I mean, it's just the way it's going. Your role, I think, will be played by Brad Pitt. What'd you wear? Uh, I wore my loincloth wrapped around my feet. Are you going by John today? And that's absolutely true. You feel it in every cell in your body. Yeah, you can, you can bend the truth and bend the visualizations no matter what your political affiliation. You could have an alpaca. My a, a girlfriend's daughter recently got married and they had llamas or alpacas at the wedding. A recording room. They recorded uh, a couple songs in the kitchen of Rumbo. So, wait, you, you, you microdosed before this, right? What? Hey, welcome back. This is Joel Albrecht again, and you are listening to Were You Still Talking? Today on the show, I have Scott Wagnon, who works for the physician that I go to as a physician's assistant. Scott has also been, he's been a physician's assistant since 2005. He's currently working in internal medicine. He had his own health problems despite heavy exercise and what he felt was a healthy lifestyle. And this prompted him to study the science of nutrition. Once he saw the evidence, he began transitioning to a whole food, plant-based diet. Ugh. He got his health back and then began sharing it with patients. And by the end of 2020, he's taught using a food-as-medicine approach to over 1,500 patients, which I think, always think is an awesome approach, both in uh, one-on-one appointments and in clinics, as well as they teach free online classes to the community. He was teaching classes live, but now they're online. So another kind of good thing that's come out of COVID, anyone can watch these classes. You can also join these classes. I'll put some links in the description. He continues to teach and share vital information with any and all who are interested in taking control of their own health and wellness through, well, eating. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. That was a, that was a really great summary. <laughs> good introduction. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. You bet. Yeah. Well, it was easy because I just took it from um, your website. So it, it <laughs> it's always easier that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, great. So I really want to start with how how you got started with a plant based diet. You you I know you did. Um, you say heavy exercise. You were actually a um, competitive athlete. Um, so you, you probably figured you were eating really good. What, um, yeah. How did that, how did that happen? Yeah. I mean, so back when I was, so I was a professional bicycle racer. I went to the Olympic trials back in 1988 and raced really competitively in the, through the late eighties to the early nineties, uh, got on a team and raced for a team in Spain back in 1990. And, uh, so once I kind of was done with my racing, I was still doing a lot of, a lot of long distance cycling. I kind of transitioned to recreational cycling and, and touring and, and kind of where my story started when it comes to nutrition was back in 2012. At that time I was riding like actually that year, 2012, I rode my bicycle 7,000 miles that year. I was into these really long, long rides. Me and a a buddy rode from Eugene, Oregon down to San Francisco in six days. Uh, It's all 700 plus miles in six days. And, and, Despite that, though, despite all those all those miles all those miles on the bicycle and whatnot, you know, I'd, of course, I'd already been a physician assistant, as you mentioned, since two thousand and five. 
So I kind of knew what was up as far as my health goes. So my health wasn't very good. My fitness was good, but my health wasn't very good. And by that, I mean, I was overweight. You know, I had a pretty good little gut going on me there. I was up, I was at 218 pounds. Uh, I'd have to kind of starve myself down to, to get even close to 200 pounds, you know, it was kind of the way, like if I wanted to be able to climb mountains really well and things like that to take some weight off, I had to really kind of starve myself. And I know that wasn't, wasn't, wasn't good. It was difficult when I was trying to put in lots of miles on the bicycle. And uh, so despite the heavy weight, I was also had high borderline, high blood pressure, had high cholesterol. I was in the pre-diabetic range on my labs and I had irritable bowel syndrome every day. I had heartburn every day. So despite all that heavy exercise, I knew I wasn't healthy and I knew I wasn't on medications yet, but kind of one of the blessings and curses of being a medical provider is you can kind of see your own future through your patients. Because, you know, I take care of all these patients that, you know, had prediabetes, now they have diabetes, then they had a heart attack and a stroke, and they're on, you know, 10, 20 different medications and and as they get older and older and, and all these chronic diseases accumulate. So I wasn't on any medications yet, but I could see that was going to be my future if I didn't, didn't do something. And so I knew it was the food because I knew it wasn't lack of exercise. I wasn't, I didn't smoke and had low stress, good, good relationship, you know? So I, as far as my lifestyle goes, I think I felt like I had a healthy lifestyle, just obviously I didn't have the food part right. So what that prompted me to do then is study nutrition. I went, okay, I need, we don't learn about nutrition in medical school or PA school. And this is just not taught. You know, we learn about, you know, some nutritional biochemistry, what's a fat, what's a protein, what's a carbohydrate, kind of that kind of stuff. But we didn't actually learn clinical nutrition. So I actually got some graduate level textbooks from Oregon State University. I kind of went online or kind of on the, on the, into the, to the medline, which is where all the studies are, where all the nutri or all the sciences basically. Mm-hmm. Cause one thing that we do learn really well in, in medical school and PA school is how to how to research the literature you know what what's a good source you know what where where do you go for evidence-based medicine and because that's what we learned that's how we we practice medicine is evidence-based and so i went okay let's do evidence-based nutrition so i went to those sources studied the textbooks and when i came out the other side of that i was like oh wow so the healthiest diet to prevent and reverse chronic diseases is a mostly whole food plant-based diet and if you look at the you know, the kind of when I came in t- before I studied that, I thought just like everybody else I come across, thought there was a big debate. What's the healthiest diet? Is it is a Mediterranean? Is it keto low carb? Is it you know what uh, carnivore? Is it you know all these different right. diets that are out right. there? Weight Watchers, Jenny Craig, all these things. What's the healthiest diet? I thought that there was a big debate about it, like just like everybody else. Oh, there's nobody can kind of decide what's what's really a healthy diet. But what I really learned was if you actually study, study academic nutrition, if you look at the sources, you know, you look at, you know, the American Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, you look at uh, the Harvard School of Public Health, you look at throughout the like World Health Organization and pretty much look around the, the authorities in nutrition throughout the world. It's really pretty, a pretty big consensus that it's probably 90 to 95% a whole food plant-based diet. And so I was like, okay, this is what the science really supports. And now what the other thing that kind of, kind of uh, blew me away was that, wow, there's only one diet that's ever been shown to reverse heart disease. The number one killer in Western society is heart disease. And so only a hundred percent whole food plant-based diet has ever been shown to reverse heart disease. Now you go back to Dean Ornish's study published in the Lancet in 1990 
and then the work of Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn at the Cleveland Clinic that's been going on for you know, 20 plus years, um, that, wow, this 100% whole food plant-based diet can actually reverse heart disease. But, you know, I was, for me at the time in 2012, when I was studying this, I was like, well, I don't want to, I have no interest in being a vegan. I still, I'm German background. I like my, my sausage, you know, some, a burger now and again, and, and my cheese and things like that. Cause just the way I was raised. And, and, um, so I had no interest. I didn't feel like, oh, I don't need to, to go all in, but I'll just move in the direction of a more whole food plant-based diet, which is a diet centered around whole plant foods, fruits, vegetables, beans, and tapped whole grains like brown rice, oats, quinoa, bulgur, amaranth, farro, uh, nuts and seeds, mushrooms. So, you know, fruits, vegetables, beans, potatoes, sweet potatoes, just all, all these whole plant foods. So I started transitioning toward that. And after a year of, of moving in that direction for myself, uh, a year later, I found myself, I dropped 46 pounds. I dropped my cholesterol 100 points. My blood pressure dropped like a rock. My uh, A1C, which is the, a test for diabetes, prediabetes, I, I went from 6.2% uh, down to 4.7%. So I reversed my prediabetes, uh, got rid of my irritable bowel syndrome, my heartburn went away, and I felt amazing. And so then I started teaching it to patients. After that uh, first year or so, I was really kind of getting into letting my uh, patients in on it. And gosh, all, my, all of a sudden, I started having to take patients with diabetes off their insulin, off their blood sugar-lowering medications, off their blood pressure medications, cholesterol medications. They started actually, I had patients that were making uh, changes even faster than I did the first year. And, and it was really kind of opening my eyes. And, oh, my gosh, it's, this is really something to this. And so then I... Um, started over time, I started teaching it to more and more patients. And then in June of 2018 is when I started uh, teaching um, the, the live classes in, first in Springfield. And then of course, because of COVID, as you mentioned, we uh, switched it to an online course. Me and another physician, Dr. Charlie Ross, do have been doing them together every single Tuesday since uh, April of last year. Wow. There's a... Um... There's a lot to unpack in all that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a mouthful. Which, well, first of all, congratulations. I mean, it's great that you're feeling better. Uh, I have so many questions. Um, and it's great that you guys, because you guys don't only just teach, you also teach doctors, right? I know uh, uh, doctors and people in the medical field. And so that, that kind of comes to something you said at the beginning of what you were saying, is that they don't teach this in medical school and is it just because there's way too much to cram into your brain in medical school why don't i've always wondered that because i've been to hospitals too many times not for myself visiting other people uh i i had um, a relative that lived to 99 so you know we ended up going to the hospital a lot and the the stuff they the dietary you know considerations seem to be non-existent it's like what do you want to eat how much sugar do you want today it, so why don't they teach that more in medical school? And why is that? I mean, the information seems to be available. Um, what, do you know why it's it's not more prevalent? That's a, that's what I'm looking for. More prevalent. Yeah, it's pretty. It's a pretty simple. It's not very flattering for the medical profession, but it's pretty simple. It's it's what what gets reimbursed is what gets taught. Oh, and so okay. if it, if you get so it has to do with you know if you know there's you're not getting paid for. Kind of our current healthcare system is really kind of a sick care system is, is a better way to describe it because right. what you're doing is you get patients get all these chronic diseases and the tools that we're taught in our toolbox are pills and procedures because 
that's what gets reimbursed. So a patient comes in and I've profited from this because that's how I get paid. I, you know, a patient comes in and sees me, I prescribe a medication, do imaging studies and, and sometimes they need surgeries and procedures. And that's how we, that's how our medical system is set up. It's not, it's not really anybody's fault. It's just the way the system is set up. And so then uh, that's, so that's how billing goes and, and reimbursement goes and, and this and that. But the, pro- the problem is, is now we, we really have a lot of good science out there. It's been out there for decades. And the, the problem is, is that, you know, the, there's, no, there's nothing to incentivize somebody to keep somebody healthy. Very, it's very far to find anywhere we can, that can be incentivized. Which, so how we need to shift our, our, you know, basically our reimbursement system is to pay the medical providers more if you keep your patients healthy. So the less prescriptions you need to give a patient, the less procedures and things they need, the better. And so, so the thing is, is that our chronic diseases are lifestyle diseases, and really nobody um, argues that. You know, pretty much, you know, so diabetes, heart disease, probably a third to 40% of cancers, um, you know, the autoimmune diseases, respiratory diseases, you know, the high blood pressure, high cholesterol, all these things are, are, these are what we call chronic diseases. These are all lifestyle driven diseases. So what we, what we eat and how we choose to live. That's the that's what causes these diseases, and so the the treatment then should be to it should be lifestyle, diet, exercise, stress reduction, not smoking, all of these things. If we actually the the this is pretty well known in the in the lifestyle medicine, nutritional uh, or preventative medicine sector, is that you could prevent eighty percent of all chronic diseases just with uh, just with a modestly healthy diet and exercise and all this and all the other lifestyle things. We could prevent all of those. And so, um, so we're, we're coming a long ways. There's a, there's a, um, American college of lifestyle medicine who I'm actually board certified. I'm board certified as a lifestyle medicine professional and, uh, American college of lifestyle medicine. That's their mission is to treat and reverse chronic disease with evidence-based lifestyle interventions. And there's, there's a residency program now it's, they're starting to get it. Um, they're working on board questions for medical schools. And there's, there are doctors like Dr. Michael Clapper is one doctor that comes to mind who he actually lectures to medical schools. Um, I've lectured to um, my PA school a couple of times. Uh, I've done a lecture for continuing education for the nurse practitioners of Oregon. So I, you know, so I'm edu- trying to educate providers, as you mentioned too, because we got to change. We just need to, that's how we change the system. It's, it's hard to change it from the top down. What's better is to teach your patients. So then the patients get healthy they can, a lot of times, a lot of doctors that find out about this, they find out about it through a patient. So like, oh gosh, all of a sudden, like I just had a, uh, one of my call, uh, physician colleagues just came up to me who she sends uh, patients to my classes all the time. She sends them to me for one-on-one appointments also because she's, she's seen the power of, of the lifestyle medicine. She just came and saw me last week and said, oh my gosh, I, you just sent me a patient uh, or I sent you a patient to your classes that um, had an A1C of, you know, 11.3% and three months later it's 6%. So you've reversed their diabetes in three months. And, and, and so I've never seen that in my entire career. And so because of that, you know, then providers get more interested in it. And then, so if we can get more patients interested in it, providers interested in it, then once you get board questions, you know, if we can start getting board questions for the medical boards, then the medical schools will start to teach it because they just want their students to pass the exam. And so then you start getting lifestyle medicine questions on the board exam and then they start teaching it 
and little by little we can start to actually um, you know, make a difference. And like, there's a lot of medical schools that have, um, they're basically focused or not focus groups, but interest groups. So they have medical schools where there's interest groups in lifestyle medicine and they don't get credit for it. It's just kind of something they do volunteer on the side and they learn about lifestyle medicine. And, um, and so the, so they the younger generation is getting it. We're getting more and more, uh, medical students to be interested in lifestyle medicine. And, and if we could teach this in, in the schools, to grade, in grade, to grade school kids, where, where this kind of just makes sense, eat, eat a more plant-centered diet, that's going to be, be good for health, but also good for the environment and, um, and good, good, good for so many different things. Right, right. And it's, um, it's always bizarre because, you know, I've heard of lifestyle medicine forever. And um, I think there's... I think it's Chinese medicine that actually has that model that if you're well, you, you pay the doctor like monthly or yearly to, to keep you well. And then if you get sick, you don't have to pay there. There's some kind of system set up that way. Um, I don't know if it would ever work in the U S but it sure makes a lot more sense to me. It's, it's like you're right now we pay in case we get sick. And then if we get sick, we pay a lot, lot, lot more. And, uh, yeah, it's a big it's a big money machine and health based, you know, a health system based on a money machine is just a, as we can see because we can see the health of Americans, a 42% obesity in America, I believe it is. That right there is a preventable, you know, there's got to be about 99% of that that's preventable and that causes all kinds of diseases. I mean, as we've seen with this pandemic, they one of the underlying causes is obesity. And it's like, so, so we can't, no one's talking about how to help obesity. You know, they're just saying, well, an underlying cause is obesity. So um, these people should get shots first. And it, it's, uh, I don't know, it's bizarre. It's its a bizarre situation. It's like, a, um, maybe we should also think about helping them uh, <laughs> with yeah, obesity yeah. because it's some... Uh, but so back to you, you went, I mean, ha, for one, how did you ride so many miles and still be heavy, you know, still be overweight? And was it hard to transition? You did say that you took a long time. So I think that's really helpful for a lot of people that, um, you know, you didn't just go, okay, next week I'm going, uh, I'm going purely plant-based because I know some people do, and that's really, that takes a lot of mind power. So, um, yeah, how, what were you eating? And- <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and was it like, were you addicted to a lot of foods and was it hard to, to switch over? Yeah, it really wasn't. But, uh, but the struggle was just cooking. You know, I, what I realized is I wasn't, didn't know that much about food and I wasn't a very good cook. So that was the challenging part. If kind of in hindsight, and, and when I teach the classes, I, I give people options, I have, I have handouts and whatnot, options where you can make it really simple. You don't even have to really get a cookbook or follow a recipe. You could just just eating, you know, just like beans and rice and vegetables and, you know, pasta with, with marinara sauce with lots of veggies and, you know, throw in, uh, you know, red potato, sweet potato in the microwave and just open up a can of beans and throw it on there. I mean, there's really simple ways to eat more plant-based without even really having to follow a recipe. So I kind of provide uh, handouts with, with real simple choices or options like that, because if it was, if someone would have given me that, some of the handouts I provide my patients and class attendees, someone would have given me a handout like that, it would have been really helpful because I wasn't much of a cook and didn't know much about food. So it can be super, super simple. Um, but as far as, you know, how I was eating, I was, you know, typical standard American diet. I probably was eating 
more vegetables than the average American, but I was, you know, still going out for fast food and probably a couple of two, three days a week. And, but just eating a lot of, you know, chicken, cheese, bacon, eggs, you know, oh, lots okay. of, you know, some processed stuff. And I was probably eating mm-hmm. lots of, I was eating scones and, you know, and bagels and all, and lots, so lots of plenty of, ca- I was eating a lot of calories because I was burning a lot of calories, but you know, people don't realize, you know, you cannot run your fork, you know, so exercise is not a good way to lose weight. And, and, and the studies show that over and over, especially for, for long-term, because, you know, for example, it takes, you'd have to run six miles just to burn off the calories from a small French fry from McDonald's. So, you know, you're just not going to be able to out, out exercise, uh, you know, a pretty processed food diet because it's just so high in calories. And so, um, so that's why I was overweight. I mean, I, I can only imagine how overweight I would have been if I wasn't logging all those miles in. <laughs> yeah, it always it always amazes me how I still see a lot of um I'm a YouTube addict kind of and I still see a lot of videos um they just I don't really click on them but they appear in my screen and it's about how to get washboard abs. Oh and this is on every health magazine, you know, quote unquote health magazine out there. How to get washboard abs. Cuz I guess it's a big thing for for men. They want to get that because they see it at Hollywood. And uh, if you talk to someone um, who will tell you the truth about that, the way you get them is to stop eating, right? The, the, the way to see your abs is to stop eating. And with most people, it's to dehydrate yourself to the point of, you know, to, to mostly dangerous levels. And boom, you'll have washboard abs. But it's not about working out. The people that have the, you know, the huge... Uh, six pack. Yes, they worked out their entire life. They've probably worked out for twenty years, you know, doing doing certain kinds of exercises. But the way they get them to pop, it's eating. It's all diet. It's it's yeah. you know, it's not exercising more. It's not doing more calisthenics. And no one wants. No one seems to want to admit that. It's it's always aggravating. Yeah. I, I'm always like, no, it's it's diet. There's, you know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Because any. Yeah, all the all the Hollywood stars that, that talk about how they got ready for a scene with where they're going to have their shirt off. Well, they starved. You know, they they oh, didn't eat gosh. and they dehydrated. They like took things to dehydrate yeah. their body, and it's like eh, that's not the best look. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> for everyone. You know. Yeah. And another point I was going to make about the uh, about the healthcare system too, when you were talking earlier, was the only the closest thing we have to it right now. The model of that would be Kaiser Permanente. It's Kaiser Permanente is kind of everything's under one umbrella. Mm-hmm. So they're, you know, their their health insurance, their pharmacy, their you know, their hospitals, their clinics, everything is under one umbrella. So they so basically the healthier the patient, the less the less expensive it is for them. So so they and they're one of the ones that have have had, you know, plant-based, they do still do actually have a plant-based diet program where they if you're a Kaiser Permanente member, you can get into their their lifestyle plant-based diet program to, to get healthy. Uh, so it's, so it's something that, so that's the closest thing we have to that. And, and, and healthcare is also trying to go, is actually going more from fee for service to value-based reimbursement. You know, the, the value, what that means is the quality measure. So you, you know, your, is your blood pressure normal? Is your A1C normal? Are you getting your screenings and things like that? And some of those quality measures line up pretty well with lifestyle medicine, but some don't so much. So, you know, because like, you know, I, I don't really get credit for reversing someone's diabetes. You just get credit for, is their A1C under control? 
It's like, well, wouldn't it be better to reverse their diabetes than just have a good A1C? It's like, yeah, you want to get rid of the diabetes. You want to get rid of these chronic diseases. And then, and then one other point too is that, is that, uh, you know, that, that basically you could probably go 90, 95% whole food plant-based and, and, and slowly if you want, or you can do it fast, you know, right away, jump into the deep end head first uh, as well, which you, you were kind of uh, talking about earlier. But, you know, when you have patients that just had a heart bypass or a stent, they're on 20 medications, you know, they have uh, one foot in the grave and one foot on the banana peel, so to speak, you know, they, they would do better to go all, all in on it. And so right. I, I, I give every patient the option of going all in on it so that they can get the best results right away and get, let their taste change more rapidly. Because that's one of the benefits to going more rapidly is your taste will change. I mean, if you're still eating bacon double cheeseburgers, then you know, uh, steamed vegetables and beans and, and, uh, potatoes are just aren't going to taste very good. You know, you gotta, you gotta get off that stuff. Cause that's that high sugar, salt, and fat processed food is very addicting. And your taste buds have been your dopamine, your dopamine, your brain is so hyper it's way up here. And so suddenly eating, you know, broccoli and potatoes and beans is going to put your dopamine way down here. It's not going to feel right. You know, that bacon, double cheeseburger and donut, it puts you up here. So you kind of have to get yourself off those foods to get that dopamine sensitivity back down so that when you eat those foods like I eat now, it, 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 it tastes good and, it, and it, everything tastes good and you feel good. And you kind of have to get yourself off. It's just basically like drugs. I mean, these, these highly processed sugar, salt and fat foods, they're designed to get us hooked on them. They're, they're, they're addicting. And, it's, and we know this from the science that it's very addicting just as addicting as cocaine or alcohol or methamphetamines or anything like that. So yeah, that's, that's true. I'm, I feel lucky that I'm not, I, I haven't eaten fast food for 20 years because it just, I don't know, it's disgusting. And I also watch fast food nation. I don't know if you ever read that book yeah. or watched that, but <laughs> another thing yeah. about diet uh, or supersize me that that's pretty right. much, about the the American diet and how addicting it is and how strange it is. And I mean, I just basically, if I eat a hamburger, I eat the hamburger. I can't eat cheese, so I eat fake cheese and, and vegetables. That's But largely that's because, um, long, I mean, a long time ago I figured out, well, about 10, at least 10 years ago, I figured out that bread is just, just bothers me. Um, and, you know, not eating bread is, is better. And then, uh, yeah. I just uh, tend to not buy bacon and stuff. And cheese I had to give up because one of my, I have had IBS forever. I was diagnosed when I was really young and um, not the current doctor I have, but another one, uh, oh boy, oh boy, 20 years ago now said, you should, why don't you try not doing dairy? And I, you know, looked at her with a quizzical look, like, are you absolutely out of your mind? And, um, and, and I said, of course, oh, I have. And she said, have you done it for two weeks before? <laughs> no, never. <laughs> yeah. I just never thought about how long it takes, you know, for that to get out of your system and stop causing uh irritation in your bowel and, and things like that. No. So, it's in so many things too. I mean, people forget, oh, the creamer in their coffee or the butter that's in this baked good or you know, the it, the whey protein, because people are doing all these protein shakes and things like that, and whey protein powder, that's that's from dairy. So so a lot of people, it's really difficult. If you eat anything that's processed or packaged at all, you're still probably getting some dairy and everything. So you really have to be 
you know, 100% dairy free. I usually even recommend a full month for for patients uh, to get to, to really see if it was the dairy that was causing it. Plus, you know, it's I try to encourage them to avoid dairy anyway, just because of, you don't need it, and it's you know, you get all you're getting. There's nothing in dairy that you can't get from other whole plant foods, so it's just one of those things. It's an easy one to try to get people uh, get make that jump if they can. Except for a lot of people are like, well, I'm easy getting rid of meat. I mean, it's easy to get rid of. Uh, um, milk and cream and things like that, or butter even, but it's like, boy, I can't give up my cheese. And there's a reason for that. Cheese <laughs> yes. is very addicting. So, <laughs> Cheese is very addicting. I've, I've read more than one article that talk about the actual morphine. There's some kind of um, something in cheese that acts like morphine. Isn't that, isn't that right? It, it right. So the, your... so the primary protein in, in dairy is casein mm-hmm. and casein gets converted to casomorphin. So just like morphine. So it's not as as strong as taking a you know, morphine or a or a you know pain pill oxycodone or something like that, but it, it but that oxymorphin hits the same receptors in the brain, and so what's interesting is so so that's why you know dairy is so constipating. You know, one of the number one cause of constipation in children is is dairy, and so a lot of times when you can get rid of dairy in children, their constipation goes away. But, you know, think about it, you know, when you, if you had a knee surgery or something like that and you took a pain pill, what did it cause? Constipation, right? Constipation. And there you go. Yeah. And so that's the same thing. Yeah. I was on painkillers for almost two years straight um, with chronic back pain and tried all kinds of methods. I mean, the doctors that were giving me the pain pills were actually into, uh, you know, trying to trying to find out what was wrong um they never did I, so but yes I, I i'm very it's like that is the main main problem with them and i did luckily for me i didn't like them i kept wondering how people get so addicted to pain pills because i can't stand the feeling i it just yeah you know i guess some people like that feeling of being all doped up and and not knowing what's going on but ugh, no i did I, I was like how do how is this a epidemic in america right, right. <laughs> what and, and the other and then the other interesting thing with with uh with cheese for example is if, if you've ever heard of the the drug narcan or naloxone i've heard or of narcan it. or naloxone yeah. yeah so it's what we give to i was a paramedic before i was a pa and so you give it to someone who has a heroin overdose you give them narcan because of what it does is it blocks the opiate receptor and to reverse the the heroin uh, overdose for example so mm-hmm. uh so if you give that drug, this is this is a study that was done. You give that drug to to patients, and then you feed them cheese. They just don't care for it. It's like, eh, it doesn't do much for me, just because you're blocking those opiate receptors. So it shows you how addictive oh, the, the wow. cheese is. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a really good illustration, man. That's nuts. Wow, wow. So do you guys? Uh, is there anything? Uh, different that you do, like for kids, is there any other way? I know it's important, probably the earlier it can start, the better. Do you have special classes for kids or do you have like different ways to teach kids ab- about a healthier diet? Um, uh, yeah, so most of my patients are, I work internal medicine, so I don't don't see kids, but um, but actually uh, the one of the handouts I give to patients is it's from the Plantrition Project. It's called the Plant-Based Quick Start Guide. They actually have one for pediatrics, and it has a few of the tweaks that you need to do for pregnancy, nursing, infants, children, adolescents. It goes through through all of that, and so I so my patients that uh, have 
kids and families and stuff, I'll usually, uh, you know, give, give them a copy of, of that and of that booklet that kind of goes over those things. And then actually good timing. Uh, we actually have a pediatrician at Oregon medical group who recently I've, I've educated, he's been going to the classes and he's been doing some education on his own. He's a, a yeah, pediatrician at Oregon medical group and he's actually doing on Jan- or March 16th. So just a week from this Tuesday, He's actually doing a talk on plant-based diets for for families, children and families. So actually, our our own pediatrician is going to be doing a talk just 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 on that topic. So oh, that's awesome. So yeah, yeah, that's yeah. great. And I, um, I almost forgot this. This is the I know the biggest question that comes up is protein because for some yeah. reason, um, in America, I think it's more in America, but it might be worldwide. Protein is just being pushed like it's the most important thing you should have. I think it comes from Arnold Schwarzenegger getting famous or something like that, you know, because bodybuilders have become a big thing. Like they've become a, a, bi- a big symbol of success, I guess. And so uh, people think, and even Arnold has said, you don't need protein like we thought. But uh, <laughs> what do you know where that comes from or how, you know, or, or do you have to fight that in people? Like, yeah, that's the biggest myth that there is. And so, um, so yeah, I can kind of, I can go back to the history of protein and how this, how this started. So, so the, so the first, the word protein in Latin is proteus, which means a, of prime importance. So it goes back to the, to the 1800s, uh, mm-hmm. um, where, where they, when they discovered protein and, and, and where this came from. And then the first kind of the, it's really sad, but the first protein, guidelines for for americans the recommended dietary allowances the first uh recommendation came from uh uh, studies they did in rats and so when they when they looked at rats they go okay so rat the breast milk of rats uh you know they has you know i think it's 20 percent, 25 percent protein i can't remember the exact number but it's it's really high and so because because rats double in size in six weeks so, the, so the, so that's where they say, okay, so these rat studies we did, they needed about this percent of protein, 20, 25%, which I think is what the kind of where the RDA is somewhere around there. And um, so that, that's how they came up with the first guideline, but then they didn't, we didn't know this at the time, but actually the, the breast, the human breast milk, guess, guess how much proteins in human breast milk. It's only about 6%, about 6% protein, human breast milk. And so that's, that's perfectly wow. designed food for humans, right? So, that, so that's the perfect food. Nobody would, would question that's the perfect food for, for an infant. And so that's ample protein for a human is about 6%. But, you know, if you're in because you're doubling in size, a human doubles in size in six months, you're, you're double in weight in six months, whereas a rat in six weeks. So, so that's where that was flawed to begin with. And then there was the whole, you know, amino acid thing where there's, well, some plant proteins are incomplete in their amino acids. So you have to start doing this protein combining thing. And then that was, that was like, gosh, 70 years ago or something like that. But that was, that was debunked right away. And they actually wrote a retraction article soon after, but then that, that uh, myth still perpetuates to today because that you don't actually have to combine. Actually, every plant food has all the, all the amino acids, the essential, non-essential amino acids. And so that's another myth. And actually the only, there's only two foods that are incomplete in amino acids. One is gelatin and another is egg white, which is albumin. And every other food, including plants has all the, the amino acids in it. 
So that's just another one of those myths. And so, but what I tell patients, you know, that someone saying protein is like nails on a chalkboard for me because there's, there's, that's not, that's not our nutrient of concern. Nobody's protein deficient. Actually, 97% of the population gets enough protein. Only 3% doesn't. And the 3% that does not get enough protein is basically it's skilled nursing facility people in nursing homes because they're deficient in calories. They have no appetite. A lot of times they're deficient in calories. So if you're deficient in calories, then you could become deficient in protein. But that's only 3% of the population. Everyone else is getting enough protein. But guess what? 97% of the population is deficient in. What's our, what's our nutrient of concern? 97% of the, of the population is deficient in fiber. Fiber is our deficiency disease, is what, part, is what our deficiency is. And that's what we need to be worried about. You know, I've been in uh, medicine for 28 years. If you count my years as a paramedic and 15 and a half as a, as a PA, and I never have once seen a, a patient with protein deficiency. So really the, the truth about protein is if you get enough calories, you'll get enough protein. So you don't have to worry about protein. Yeah, if you're elderly, you're you're a professional athlete, you're a bodybuilder. Yeah, you probably need about ten percent more, and so you but you eat more, right? So if you're burning burning five thousand calories a day, like I was riding my bike or more, I just need to eat more calories. And as long as I, you get more calories, you're going to get enough protein. So so protein is just a it's a marketing tool. It's a good marketing tool. It's and and the and you know the industry has done a good job at marketing it. And that's why everyone thinks they need more and more and more. And, you know, there's, there's plant-based bodybuilders out there. On a, and if you've seen the movie, The Game Changers, that's a, a really good movie on Netflix. Actually, mm-hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger's in that movie. <laughs> and, uh, oh, that's right. And they show, yeah, and they show all these professional athletes, bodybuilders. Uh, they're, they eat nothing but plants and they have these huge, you know, huge muscles. I mean, all you got to do is go, well, wait a minute. So buffaloes, giraffes, elephants, rhinoceros, hippopotamus, lowland gorillas, they eat nothing but plants. And look at the largest land mammals on the planet eat nothing but plants because all protein actually comes from plants. So when you're eating an animal, you're just, you're eating, that's like the, you know, the, you're eating the intermediate, you're eating the, you're getting it from a secondary source because the animal ate the plant, that's where they got the protein. And then you're eating the animal's muscle and you're getting it indirectly that way. So just by eating the plants, you know, like one of the, uh, people in the movie, uh, he's considered the strongest man on the planet. His name is Patrick Boboumian. Mm-hmm. And uh, he can lift 1,200 pounds and carry it. Like he broke the record, the world record. He carried it like was it 50 yards or 50 feet, something like that. They show it in the movie. And uh, he eats nothing but plants. And he says, one of his lines in the movie is, uh, you know, hey, how are you so strong like an ox? You don't even eat meat or anything. He goes, well, have you ever seen an ox eat meat? <laughs> it's like, no, it's an oxy True. grass, right? <laughs> right. So anyway, that's the story about. Well, yeah the the uh, the animal argument is is interesting because that can be carried out ad nauseum. You know, I mean, all predators are incredibly strong and fast, and they they're really strong and fast because they have to keep up with the uh, non meat eaters. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, so that can. It's an interesting argument. I don't know how valid it is. I think the better argument is just that we don't need so much protein and you've never seen a protein deficiency. I think that's a really a really good point. I mean, I've done I've definitely gone down this uh I've been susceptible to this protein marketing. I and I always just wonder where it came from. And it's like the protein powders are yummy. 
the way <laughs> the way protein. I'm always surprised that they taste so good when they have hardly any sugar in them. But maybe they're lying. I don't know. They're making they put some kind of chemical that makes them really good. Um, but now I don't have to buy them anymore, so that saves a lot of money as well. Yeah, the marketing machine behind this stuff is just incredible, and and there are people. There are people who are doctors supposedly on the podcast circuit. Uh, huge YouTube channels are are doing all kinds of interviews who are pushing, um, some of them pushing pure protein diets, which I always thought would be <laughs> insane, but definitely pushing yeah. that, you know, there's this uh, idea um, and, I, you know, it sounds like what you're saying is it's pure myth that we, you know, there's all kinds of different reasons that we need meat in our diet because we've had meat in our diet for a million years or something like this. But but you're saying that's complete complete myth. That's folly. I mean, you don't need it. I mean, it's. I mean, mm -hmm. we are we are omnivores, which means we we've you know developed to be able to eat to adapt to almost any kind of a diet. So. You know, it, you know why? That's why we can. You know, if we don't have any carbohydrates because we're because we're starving or whatever, hunters and gatherers, and we don't get to eat, we go into ketosis because we need to be able to burn fat for fuel if we don't eat. And our if our brain needs, you know, it can only run off sugar, and so we would die if we just tried to eat. We didn't eat any anything that had carbohydrate in it, sugar, unless we had a backup system. And our backup system is to burn fat to make ketones. And then the ketones can can run our brain, and so uh, you know. The, but we so we are omnivores as far as our experience in life, because you know we if you could kill an animal and eat it, that's calories, and so you didn't starve to death, so you passed on your genes, right? Where if you actually look at our physiology, you actually were if you look at our our body mass in our intestinal surface area, there's a curve where you you have like okay, here's our our functional surface area of our intestine, and here's our body mass, and it, where it comes together, we're actually frugivores. We're actually fruit eaters, kind of more like the lowland gorilla, because we're that's what we we descended from from apes, basically. So, so oh, we're right. plant plant eaters by design. So our physiology, when it was laid down, you know, millions of years ago, not even just the last million to forty thousand years, we actually most of our physiology was laid down way before that we're actually designed to eat mostly plant material. If you look at our jaw and our teeth and just the way our physiology is laid out, we're supposed to be eating mostly plant material. doesn't mean we, you know, can't eat meat. If we, you know, if we're, if we're come across it and, and that's what we need to survive, then by all means. And so that, you know, so when I teach patients, I don't necessarily, you know, tell somebody if they're a hunter and they really love to eat elk or venison or, or fish or something like that, I don't tell a patient that, oh, you have to become a vegan. You shouldn't ever eat that food. I just say, hey, you know, what, what are your health goals? What are your health conditions? What, what, you know, what are you trying to get out of this? And let's move you towards some more plant in a more plant-based direction because that's going to give you, bring you the best health. Whether you choose to give up meat or dairy or processed foods even for that matter, that's up to you. It's just, you know, if somebody then, you know, is eating mostly plant-based, but they're still eating, you know, some still eat chicken and fish and some cheese and things like that, but they still are on blood pressure pills. They still have diabetes. You know, they, they have heart disease. They had a stent, put, you know, put in recently. Hey, you know, they might want to move away from those, those foods as well. So it's kind of like you take every food and you, what's the pros and the cons of that particular food. And how does that, is having that food in your diet, is that keeping you from your health goals or not? 
and you know and if it's not then then fine so it's so it's not like i have an agenda to get everyone to become a vegan or something like that not if you follow the science that's not what it's about it's about trying to focus on food and i think one of the problems with a lot of diets a lot of doctors that write books and and maybe go on shows and say you know do a do a high protein diet a carnivore diet is it's like it's focusing too much on the you know we hear about the macros you know people are so focused on you know what how much fat do i should i eat how much carbohydrate should i eat how much protein should i eat and it's like that's missing the point the point is that you know we don't eat macros we don't eat carbs fat and protein we eat food and it's like so because like a carbohydrate for example you know a, a a kidney bean or a jelly bean that's mostly carbohydrate right people say well i don't want to eat beans it's too many carbs it's like well a, a kidney bean and a jelly bean have completely different effects on the body a kidney bean has you know has fat has protein has carbohydrate has vitamins minerals micronutrients lots of fiber and a perfect package for you Je- a jelly bean is just mostly sugar by weight and it gives you no nutrient value whatsoever but people kind of look at those two foods as almost equal these are both carbs right i shouldn't eat either oh, right it's like well, no right. that's not you're missing the point you know it, it, you eat so so food-based nutrition is much more valuable than than nutrient-based nutrition so we need to focus on food and that's what that's one of the the uh, lessons i hammer home in one of my classes uh, is just you know we need to focus on food food-based nutrition and and that comes that that particular line food-based nutrition is much more important than nutrient-based nutrition that comes from t colin campbell who um, is a nutritional uh, biochemist from uh, cornell cornell university uh, very he's been he's been a nutritional scientist for like 60 years at this point a very very long time that's uh, from the china study and the book whole and um, this, he has a lot of wisdom when it comes to nutritional science. So that particular line comes from him. Well, I really appreciate that idea. I mean, um, and, and your, your like attitude about it, because I see people on both sides of this um, ridiculous debate. Um, I've, I've not had anyone on the show to talk about dieting before, um, mainly because I haven't had anyone, I haven't found you know anyone that I thought was qualified. So this was a great opportunity because... Uh, you know, I consider you extremely qualified and, but the getting, just the kind of getting into this whole debate, uh, it's one advantage to having a smaller podcast because I won't be overwhelmed with people commenting yeah. about it, but it, it just, it's, it's insane how, how personal people take things and how right. it, on both sides. I mean, I've seen so many people who are like fighting for veganism, right? They're, they're like, I'm fighting the vegan fight. And if you're not vegan, you're wrong. And for one, they're not looking at all the science because I've seen many things about growing. If we grew meat in a whole in a different way, it's not necessarily bad for the planet. What we're how we grow meat now is terribly bad for the planet. But there was meat on this planet long before there was people. And you know, people and car and uh, people and the animals we ate lived here for. Um, I mean, it's only been about a hundred years that we've been screwing that up, right? And it's, yeah, it right. hasn't been very long that we said uh, Texas should be all cattle, and you know, Montana and Texas that should be cattle. Period. Uh, that was a bad idea, but we didn't even know it for seventy-five years. I mean, it took a while for us to say, "Oh yeah, this probably isn't a good idea." <laughs> this is yeah. probably bad. And, and, and you're saying, and you're saying how food's so personal. It, that's so true because. 
you know, and that, teaching this to patients, it's that way. Because like if, you know, here's an example. So if a patient comes to me and they have hepatitis C, for example, and I say, okay, here's the treatment options. Here's, here's, here's what we should do. Here's the labs we should draw. Here's, here's, here's the, treatment, the treatment recommendation. That's all evidence-based that I would be giving those, those, uh, that, that treatment to the patient. And the, and the patients don't, don't even question it, you know, for the most part, no one's going to even question it. Oh, that's just probably what the best evidence has. He's just providing me with the best evidence-based medicine treatment options that are available. Mm-hmm. And don't, don't even think twice about it. Just, just okay, doctor, or, you know, stop, you're, this is what we're doing. And so, but when it comes to nutrition and I say, okay, well, I'm using the exact same evidence-based guidelines for nutrition and lifestyle that I did for the hepatitis C. But then when I say to tell a patient, here's how you should eat, here's how you should live. Now you're, de- you're, 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 you're getting into their, you're intruding, intruding into their personal, their, cause food is so personal. Food is culture. It's religion. It's social. It's mom. It's grandma. It's their recipes. It's so attached to our emotions that I get patients that question me all the time. Well, that's not what I heard or that everyone has an opinion when it comes to nutrition and so I think that's the, the wisdom that I've gained over the last eight years that I've been doing this is that I was in that same boat. I, I would have questioned it too. Cause I, you know, I used to eat a low carb Atkins diet like 15 years ago. And I saw the, some of the short-term data that, that was available at the time. And that's all there was at the time, 15 years ago. And, uh, and so I had an opinion about it and kind of going back to the point I made earlier is that at the beginning of the talk is that, um, you know, when I study nutritional science, I realized there wasn't a big debate again. So it's like, it is a mostly plant-centered diet. So when any, if anyone else comes on your show or, you know, other people that are listening, well, I'm, you know, keto is really popular and I've read about the carnivore diet and I've read about these, all these other diets. And I, that, that more matches my own food preferences. People believe in that and they, and they stick to their guns and they, and they kind of reject anything else that they hear and and believe me, I I've been there. I I I was one of those people before. But when you actually, hopefully, what your you, the listeners can take away is that. But there is a note. Really, if you look, if you're just going to trust academic science, academic nutrition throughout the world, which is what I do, I follow the science. Is there isn't a debate? Those, those diets aren't considered to be following the science. Those 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 diets are just trying to be popular, trying to t- tap into what people's preferences are. So people like to hear good news about their bad habits. So people like to be told that bacon is good for them and butter in your coffee is good for them. That's good. Yes. Like people like that. And so they glom onto that. And so, but that's not good science. I mean, yeah, you can, you can kind of another bit of wisdom I, I can share is that, you know, kind of the way I did things before was backwards. So what, what I mean by that is, you know, I had food preferences. I read a book like Adkins, for example, and I like eating that way. And I lost weight and my cholesterol dropped and I got some health benefits because, and I saw, and I was able to look into the, into the literature and support and find studies that supported what I was eating. And so that made it really easy because, wow, to see, there's some, there's some data here that shows that I can get these health benefits from and that's following the science. And so I, so, okay. So I justified my own beliefs and values at the time. Whereas what I've done now over the last eight years is instead of doing it that way, which I consider backwards, is I went, okay, what I did in 2012, I'm, I'm an open book. I'm just going to learn academic nutrition. 
I'm just going to wipe the slate clean. What is the science? What's the balance of the science? What's the balance of the evidence say about what's going to be the healthiest way to eat and form my beliefs and, and preferences to what, or my food choices and lifestyle choices based on what the balance of the science is. That's the correct way to do it. Not the other way around, not where I have a, you know, a belief or an agenda that I was trying to justify. It's what's the science say right now about what's the healthiest way to eat. And, and I think, feel like that's the, that should be the way that we do it because, you know, it's, it's really easy to, you know, kind of suck yourself into and, and look for the kind of cherry pick the science that supports your belief. And then now to, to my, I guess, to my defense is that when I studied the science on low carb diets 15 years ago, we only had short-term data then. Now, now we have long-term data. And what that means is instead of just, you know, a, a serial marker, which is like a, a lowering of the blood pressure, a lowering of the cholesterol over six to 12 months, that's the only, the only studies we had 15 years ago. Now we actually have studies that show what we call hard endpoints. And what hard endpoints are, are all-cause mortality, which means death from any cause, or cardiovascular mortality, which means death from a heart attack or a stroke. And we have five-plus-year five data on low-carb diets now for that. We didn't 15 years ago, and it looks really bad for the low-carb people. So yeah, actually, all-cause mortality after, after a five-year study was increased by 30%. So if you have a 30% higher risk of death from any cause going on a low-carb ketogenic type of a diet. And there was another really good study out of Sweden that was done, and that was all over five years also. And patients that had already had a heart attack, they put them on a low-carb a low diet. And after five years, they actually had a 51% increased risk of death from a heart attack going on the low-carb diet. We also have a one-year study where patients went from a plant-centered diet to a, to a low-carb animal-based diet. And after a year, their arteries clogged by 30% more. And we actually have PET scans of their heart where it shows the decreased blood flow of the heart got worse by 30 to 40% after switching to uh, an animal-based diet from a plant-based diet, whereas the people that stayed on the plant-based diet, they had a, a 50 to about 30, close to 50% reduction in their artery clogging and an increase in their blood flow through their heart. So we actually have better data now that, that shows, wow, it's not such a good idea to, uh, to go on these low-carb keto diets. You might lose some weight and have some short-term uh, benefits in your numbers, but you're you're basically mortgaging your long-term health. So it's, so I can't recommend you know eating that way to anybody. That is um, not good news for a few of my Facebook friends, and <laughs> I will kind of yeah. point this out in my description of the podcast that maybe that's not the best way to eat. I've tried to do keto diet, um, and it's uh, it's also I mean to really do it you have to be an incredibly strict eater. It's almost like uh, eating like a bodybuilder does. It, you really have to cut out everything. And I think some of the short-term benefits people see is that if you're really doing low-carb keto diet, you're cutting out uh, all junk food and sugar. So a lot of the benefits uh, probably come from that in the beginning. I, I never, I did a modified version of that for a while. Um, and it wasn't very good for me to, to kind of transition now to more of a plant-based diet would not be that difficult. I, I eat a lot yeah. of plants and it, it really wouldn't be that hard. And on that subject, I actually, um, I will admit to the audience that one of the reasons we're talking is because I had a high cholesterol count, something I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, because I know cholesterol is something that people, you know, pay a lot of attention to and doctors pay a lot of attention to. So I had two questions. One, if you're just over the, you know, magic, the high number, 
Is that like uh, a big health risk? And two, I noticed that the low number is zero. Can you actually have a zero cholesterol? I've never seen it that low. I've seen people down around 90 for their total cholesterol. Yeah. So, the, so you want to be below 200 is what's considered normal for, for in America. Well, you know, so we kind of have, you know, how we figure lab values, what's a normal lab value uh, on any lab actually is, is the bell-shaped curve. So okay. We have, I don't know if you've taken statistics before, but you have your median, which is the, the average. And then you have the basically two standard deviations below the median, two standard deviations above the median. That's mm-hmm. your bell-shaped curve. That's where normal lab values come in. And so, uh, so you should be total cholesterol less than 200. Uh, ideal for your LDL, which is your bad cholesterol, is to be under 100. But now, you know, the thing is, though, that the uh, majority of people that die from heart attacks and strokes, they actually have what's considered a lot of times a normal cholesterol. They could have a cholesterol of 180 because they're on a statin, for example, and they might have a LDL cholesterol of you know 80 or 90, and that's considered normal, but they still die from heart attacks and strokes because that's still not really normal. Actually, uh, if you look at the Framingham heart data from Framingham, Massachusetts, which is a longitudinal study that's been going on since the 1940s, is the only place that seems to be heart attack proof, for, for example, is less than 150 on the total cholesterol, and less than 70 on your LDL. You don't tend to see any heart attacks or strokes when you get below those numbers. And so, but, but again, you know, cholesterol is only one piece of the, of the, of the puzzle. So, you know, when we, as doctors, when we focus so much on the number, that is important and we treat the number, but, you know, the reason that, you know, going on statins only reduces your risk of having a heart attack or a stroke by about 20 to 30% is because you're not treating the causation of the disease. You're just lower, artificially lowering the cholesterol, which still is a good thing. You, don't, you do want to decrease that risk. And so statins have value. It's just that you're not treating the causation of the heart disease. And so, you, so that's why people die in America every day with good cholesterol on their statins because nobody's treating their, all the other things. You know, there's a lot more going on. There's the Besides the plaque in the artery, which is mostly made of the, the dense LDL cholesterol particles, there's also oxidative stress, inflammation in the arteries, the instability of the plaque, which the plaque ruptures and tears and it spills out the contents, you form a blood clot. So there's a lot more that goes into having a, you know, rupturing your plaque and having a heart attack or a stroke than just what your, your, total, your cholesterol is. Oh, that's good. That's answered a couple more questions that I had. <laughs> Oh yeah, Actually, yeah, yeah. Because I've always I've heard that too that um, you know people can have lower cholesterol and still have a heart attack. And some people um, isn't some of that hereditary? Just heart disease and and you know there are people that are kind of prone to having a heart attack, right? That, right. So probably we for most things we could probably put about ten to fifteen percent of the blame on genetics. So. Um, with heart attack specifically or cholesterol specifically anyway, um, there's the ApoA1 gene. There's, there's a gene where you have this uh, extra ApoA1, which you can't, which doesn't lower with, with statin drugs. And uh, so if you have this ApoA1, then you're higher risk of having a heart attack or a stroke. And, and so pretty much people that have that, for example, they just have to really be strict with all the other lifestyle things. They, you know, they're taking their statin probably and they're, you know, not smoking, hopefully eating a plant-centered diet, exercising, getting good sleep, reducing stress, all of those things to re- 
because that's really all you can do. You know, you can't, we can't control our genetics, but a good line I like to use when it comes to our genes and chronic disease is that our genes may load the gun, but our lifestyle pulls the trigger. So, so we, we don't have to be victim of our genes. We actually have some control over it. And we didn't really know how much control we had over our genes until more recent studies where, like, for example, um, uh, one of the studies Dean Ornish did on early stage prostate cancer was he did work with uh, Dr. Craig Venter, who um, actually was one of the one of the people that that mapped the human genome. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, he did work with him. And what it showed was uh, you could turn on and off genes with lifestyle. So your diet and lifestyle, you can actually take genes that were that were turned on to promote cancer, you could turn those off. So you could turn off t- tumor promoter genes and you could turn on tumor suppressor genes. And, and you could see it on these gene maps. And it's, it's amazing. There's hundreds of genes that could be turned on or off. So our food and our lifestyle can turn on and off genes. And so we might you know, be predisposed to certain diseases, but our lifestyle can actually determine whether or not these genes cause disease in us. And Another, another analogy I heard that, that I really like was that, you know, kind of we have certain genes that are like, we have no choice, like whether our eyes are blue or brown or whatever. We, we, you know, those are dictator genes. We, we have no control over those. But a lot of these genes that control whether or not we get certain diseases, those genes are kind of like committees, for example. So they can be influenced. And so, we, so if we actually you know, eat a really healthy diet and have a really healthy lifestyle, we can have some say over those genes, whether or not they get expressed or not. So we, so we have those kinds of genes as well. And so that's great news because, you know, we don't have to succumb to the diseases our, our parents and grandparents did. And the other thing people forget about too, is that, yeah, genes run in, run in families, but so do diet and culture. So, so diet and lifestyle also run in families. Right. Recipes right. run in families and activity levels and whether you smoke and, so there's a lot of things that, that determine that. That's really interesting because that sounds like scientific evidence for something that um, meditation teachers have been talking about for ages. You know, that you can, because meditation is a, is a lifestyle change as well. Yeah. I mean, that's something that they've said for a long time could change all kinds of things in internally in your body. So um, that sounds like scientific evidence for that, actually, because, yeah, yeah. meditation is a type of lifestyle change. and. Interestingly, most meditation practices involve plant-based diets. <laughs> right. I mean, well, yeah, Dean, you know, a, a, a religious meditation practices. Yeah. yeah. Well, Dean, or- Dean Ornish's program that he does, he, uh, he actually had to have meditation as part of their lifestyle changes and his program. His program is actually covered by Medicare. It's, it, his program and uh, Nathan Pritikin, if you've ever heard of Nathan Pritikin's uh, program, it's also a plant, plant-based diet. So Dean Ornish and, and Nathan Pritikin's program are the only two programs, diet programs and lifestyle programs that are covered by Medicare. There's actually a special billing code. It's, it's actually intensive cardiac rehab. So there's already been cardiac rehab for people that have had heart attacks and uh, things like that, um, unstable you know, angina, chest pain and whatnot. That, that's been around a long time as cardiac rehab, but there's actually a special billing code for intensive cardiac rehab. And that's actually now covered by Medicare. And those are the only two diet programs that do because those are the only, you know, as I mentioned earlier, only a whole food plant-based diet is the only diet that's ever been shown to reverse heart disease. So um, those are actually covered by Medicare. And another little caveat too about longevity, which is a hot topic, is actually um, 
also, uh, they, uh, Dean Ornish also did work with um, Elizabeth Blackburn. So Elizabeth Blackburn won the Nobel Prize. She's uh, for her work on telomeres. So mm-hmm. telomeres are kind of like the, on the ends of our DNA, we have these little telomeres, which are kind of like, uh, think about a shoelace, the, the, you know, the little cap on a shoelace to keep it from unraveling. Uh-huh. Um, that's, what, uh-huh. that's what a telomere is. And so, uh, so Elizabeth Blackburn did uh, work on, on telomeres and, and, and discovering t- telomerase and the, the enzyme that breaks it down. And so the same diet and lifestyle changes that, that, that uh, Dean Orris showed could reverse early stage prostate cancer, also reverse heart disease. They did, a, they did longevity studies as well. And it actually showed that the people that went on the lifestyle program they actually lengthened their telomeres. And then the people that didn't, the control group that didn't do the lifestyle changes, their telomeres shortened by the, by like 5% over, I think it was 5% over five years, which is kind of what you'd expect. So as we age, so this is this is aging at the cellular level. So you actually could show, you could extend your life, lengthen the telomeres with this, with the, with this lifestyle change. And this is at the molecular level. We can see it. You actually see the, the the telomeres lengthen over the over the length of that study doing the lifestyle intervention, whereas it shortened as expected in the control group. So so another that's why you know you hear about the blue zones, the people on the blue zones that are the five places on earth that live the longest, the centenarian mm-hmm. people. Yep. They're ninety five percent plant based eaters and and they have a healthy lifestyle. So um, just so that's the evidence in the population. Here's the evidence at the molecular level. So pretty exciting because it's really simple changes that can have these high these high tech research and studies can show what what these simple changes can can make and and this that's a message that Dean Ornish talks about a lot so I'm kind of paraphrasing from him because because he's the one that does all these has done these groundbreaking studies. Yeah, and that uh, that's pretty amazing stuff because everyone does seem to want to live longer. I don't know if I want to live to be 200 years old, but um. Yeah, <laughs> people are looking at the possibility now, and you know, so much of it is so much of the science fiction around it is that they're going to find something to, you know, to make your blood cell your blood cells heal with a uh, um, an injection or something, or they're going to find a super vitamin, you know, that's going to make your brain heal. But um, the reality of it is probably more along the lines of uh, diet and health, right. <laughs> you know, good practices. Uh, right. trying not to be so stressed. I mean, I know stress is a, a big, a big thing in America now. It's not gotten any better over the last year, but yeah, diet changes or lifestyle changes is a better way to put it. Um, right. yeah, that makes a lot more sense that that's the way, that's the thing that that's going to help us live longer. If people really want to live longer, it's a pretty simple change, but like you say, it's such a, <laughs> it's such a, yeah. a personal thing. People have a hard time changing. Yeah, it's a challenge. I I mean, I know that on a personal level. It's challenging. I don't know why it is, but it is. Uh, Yeah, it's nuts. But There's there's just so many factors that go into into our food choices and nutrition. And and then we're just getting a lot of mixed messaging out there. And, you know, it's kind of the, you know, the food industry is doing kind of the same tactics that the tobacco industry was doing back in the 1950s, kind of putting out pseudoscience and kind of, bad putting out some bad studies just to kind of get a headline and then they and then a lot of times these studies they once they get peer reviewed they they admit they were a bad study they did they didn't actually weren't powered to show what they said it was going to show and they have to send out a retraction statement but the damage is already done it's already it was already butter is back was already on the front of time magazine or whatever so the damage was done 
And then people are confused because, you know, you always, if I talk to, to patients, they're like, well, you know, eggs were good. Now they're bad. Now they're good. Now they're bad. And nobody can decide what, so nobody can decide that, you know, the scientists, you know, quote unquote, the science can't decide. So I'm just going to eat what I want. And, and that's kind of, and that's what the food industry wants. That's what they depend on. That's what the tobacco, that's the same tactics the tobacco industry used in the 1950s. You know, there was already 7,000 studies that showed that smoking caused cancer back in the, in the 1960s. And that's, you know, because smoking was normal. Two thirds of Americans were smokers in the 1950s. And it wasn't until the late 60s when the first Surgeon General report came out against to actually say, hey, smoking can cause cancer. We already had 7,000 studies at that point. So it's like, you know, it takes a long time to get to get the truth out there. And, and when smoking is normal, then people didn't want to hear it. Whereas when you eating the standard American diet is normal, you know, hearing someone like me talking about, hey, we should be eating mostly whole plant foods, like, well, that's not what I've heard. And because because eating the standard American diet is normal. So what I'm trying to teach people goes against, you know, what our culture is and what our and what our food environment and lifestyle environment is. And that's the the challenge that I'm up against. And, you know, and again, I just I want to say again is that, you know, this is this is the science and it's not my just, you know, it's not the Scott Wagner diet or or any of these other Dean Ornish diet or anything like that. It's just what the science supports. And and I just always go back to because right as, as I mentioned earlier, I'm you know board certified with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. And this is, you know, if you have if, if I have a patient or somebody that's well, uh, you know, where are you getting this information from? You know, I give, share my sources, but I also, you know, direct people to the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. And, you know, that, that's, that's what they're teaching because that's what the, the science to them supports as well. And that's what's getting, you know, getting put out there. And, and probably within three or four years, the uh, lifestyle medicine is going to be a recognized specialty. So just like rheumatology or endocrinology or cardiology, uh, lifestyle medicine is going to be a recognized specialty. And so I'm going to hopefully be there at the, the first in line to, uh, to be a specialist in, in this. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping and we're aspiring to, to do. That's awesome. That's, that's awesome news. I mean, it, it's awesome in a way. It's kind of sad that that has to be. Um, <laughs> we have to have that specialty. It's, it's, I don't know. That's somehow kind of, in, it, it's interesting. It's interesting, but um, yeah. Congratulations. As soon as it happens, that would be fantastic. I think, I think it's a great thing. Um, I think also that I've taken up enough of your time because I know you have a family and stuff, but I really, I really appreciate you coming on the show. This has been extremely educational. Uh, I know that it, it will bring up emotions in people. I know one of the biggest, um, causes of obesity is um, what they call emotional eating. And it's pretty interesting that uh, I think it's a big kind of, uh, part of Americans being so, um, uh, what am I trying to say? We, we have so many things at our disposal. We have so, I mean, you go in the grocery store, 90% of what I see in the grocery store, I would never eat. I'm sure that's true for everybody. You know, that it's just there, we have so much there that we can eat, but it's great that there are people like yourself, you know, putting out better information and, and, trying to help people change their lifestyle because there doesn't seem to be a lot of that in the medical world. So if they could actually make that a medical practice, I think that would be amazing. I think it'd be absolutely amazing. Yeah. And there's clinics out there doing it. So they have, you know, you have a dietitian, you have a physician champion, you have health coaches, you have, mm -hmm. 
you know, physical therapists, we're helping you with the exercise. You have psychologists working on counseling. So people that have, you know, they're reaching for food for, you know, for using it like a drug basically, because they have underlying mental health problems or, or they're a pure food addict. There's lots of people that are, that are actually food addicts to, you know, sugar, salt, and fat. And, and, and that's a whole nother ball game. And, but what I, you know, wanted to, one of the last messages I wanted to leave you with is just that, you know, when I, whether I see a patient one-on-one -on -one in the clinic or someone that's uh, attending the online class, you know, we'll, and I do these with Dr. Charlie Ross, the, the two of us together, and, you know, we, we're never going to judge you. So I never judge a patient because it's not, it's not fair because it's not, you know, you're having to come, you're having to try to help them unlearn what they've learned. And there's so many, you know, physical, mental, cultural, socioeconomic, there's so many factors that go into our diet and lifestyle and how we, how we came to be where we are with our health. There's so many factors. And so it's not helpful to give negative messaging and, and say, Hey, you know, you're, if you're, it's my way or the highway, that's not, that's not going to help anyone. So I just try to give people the education. Here's, here's the tools, here's the resources, here's the science. You make the decision for yourself. Well, I'm not the food police. I'm not going to, Say, hey, you're failing because you're still eating this and not eating that. That's not what it's about. It's about, you know, it's kind of like I'm the coach. And so, you know, you, you're learning how to play tennis. You know, I'm going to show you how to hold the racket and swing the racket, but you have to swing the racket. But it doesn't happen overnight. You have to, you have to practice every day. You have to keep learning and keep practicing, just like learning to play a musical instrument or speaking a new language. It takes repetition. It takes, it takes work. And so, and I think a reason we need such a specialty is because we need this, it's not going to just be one person. We need, we need all these different professionals coming in from all these different areas to help shift the culture, shift the culture in the, in the home and the support system around them. And, you know, our, our, our food and, and lifestyle culture in this country is so toxic and it's going to take a lot of work to be able to kind of reverse that. And, and, and try to shift the, you know, shift the tide a little bit and, and towards a healthier direction. Oh yeah. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it, it's a, you know, a huge part of advertising everywhere, television, billboards, magazines, TV is the biggest one. You know, what do they advertise? They advertise beer and food and you know, the food is never all that healthy. <laughs> it's yeah. like, Fast food, and now fast food has gone to this idea of we're going to give you fake burgers. Well, those fake burgers probably aren't any better than the real burgers. In some instances, they're showing that they're worse because they have more fat because to taste like the real thing, you know, they still load it with stuff. And yeah, fake yeah. bacon. Yeah. yeah, it might be slightly better for the animals. It's better for the animals. It might, you know, it's right. probably slightly better for the environment, but it's not going to, yeah, it's not going to be better for your health, but. Sometimes I call those foods transition foods. So it's like, well, if it, it's a, maybe it's a step in the right direction, you know, maybe the, the vegan breakfast sausage, you know, if you're not ready to go from bacon and eggs to steamed kale for breakfast, maybe you can go from bacon and eggs to, you know, morning star sausage or something with, you know, with some, you know, potatoes or, you know, some sweet potatoes or something with it, you know, it's a, it's a transition. It's a step in the right direction, but yeah, I agree with you. A lot of those processed vegan foods aren't necessarily that healthy either. Yeah, not not always. They, it, it makes sense though. It's a step in the right direction. I like I like hearing that. That that makes sense. <laughs> well, yeah. Scott, thank you so much for being on. Uh, you've been listening to. Were you still talking? This is Joel Albrecht, and my guest today is Scott Wagnon. 
He is a nutritional specialist as well as a physician's assistant. He has studied nutrition for a long time, both uh, many different sides of it. So I'm glad you listened. Um, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, I hope I maybe put some ideas in people's heads because there was a lot of ideas in this podcast and most of them good. Um, the ones coming from the expert, not necessarily the ones coming from the podcaster. So thank you so much. And as I always say, be good to yourself and be good to everyone else. Thanks for listening.